Church, if you could please open up to the book of Acts, chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Before we dive into our passage this morning, every Christian is called to share the gospel. Maybe when I hear that, that terrifies you a little bit. Every Christian is called to share the gospel. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but this morning I want to ask, what does that look like? I mentioned that it looks different for everybody. It doesn't mean that everyone must be on a stage like this speaking to a crowd of people. It doesn't mean that everyone must learn to be a teacher, for that gift is not given to all. So then what does it look like? Well, this morning we're going to see some common traits of a gospel witness. That's what I'm going to call it, a gospel witness. Here's our main idea this morning. A true gospel witness is a life that is all about Jesus. A true gospel witness is a life that is all about Jesus. As we think about our theme for the year, not about me. If it's not about me, then who is it about? It is all about Jesus. This is what the gospel is. So to give you some context before we dive into chapter 3, remember we're in the book of Acts, and it's a book about the power of God being made manifest through the witness of the church. I mentioned that it might be appropriate to call the book, instead of the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. In Acts chapters 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit is promised, and then he fills the early Christians, and the early church becomes a powerful witness, a beacon to the world. This morning, we're coming to chapter 3, where this witness is going to be manifested in everyday life. I am going to read through all of chapter 3 and four verses in chapter 4, so if you're physically able, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're not, that's okay. I'm going to start in Acts 3.1, and I'll be going through Acts 4.4. Here is what the Word of God says. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. When he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus 
whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for inspiring the words that we just read, now we ask that you would speak them powerfully into our hearts, that we might be stirred through you to further faith and obedience to Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So throughout the book of Acts, signs and wonders will continue to conform or to confirm rather the gospel message as it begins to take root. We saw that in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit manifested himself through the speaking of tongues. And following that sign, Peter proclaimed the gospel and it says that many souls were added to the church. This is the exact same pattern that we see here in chapter 3. There's a sign, the gospel is shared, the church grows, now up to about 5,000. This morning we're going to see a pattern that comes out of a gospel witness that applies to every believer. We're going to see that a gospel witness affects, announces, and aggravates. A gospel witness affects, announces, and aggravates. Back in Matthew 28, as we think about how the gospel witness affects, in verses 19 and 20, Jesus gives us the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We read that in the English and we say, okay, the verb is go. But if you look in the Greek there, the verb actually is make disciples. And then there's three ways we do that. Going, baptizing, and then teaching to obey. So it isn't just go and make disciples. It, it actually communicates something like make disciples as you are going out. As you leave out from here, as you are going, make disciples all along the way. Baptizing and teaching is kind of what that communicates. We make disciples as we go about our lives. And that's what we see Peter and John doing here in verse 1. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. We read last time how the early church made prayer a significant part of their lives. They prayed regularly together. And now we see here them living this out. Peter and John, hey, you want to go to the temple together and pray at the hour of prayer? Imagine if we had something like that. An hour of prayer every day. It's time to go pray together. Let's go. That's what they were doing. They weren't looking for an opportunity for a miracle. They hadn't planned out ahead of time, hey, today we're going to do a miracle and I'm going to stand up and share the gospel and we're going to get arrested. They didn't plan that. They were just going. As it turns out, there was a paralyzed man who was taken out to beg for money and food every day. In those days especially, if you were paralyzed, the only hope you had at survival is living off the generosity of others. If they weren't generous, you would not survive. So he is carried out by people who knew him and laid there, and then he would beg for alms as people came in and out of the temple to do their daily activities. So the man cries out to Peter and John for assistance. And this is where we see the first effect of the gospel. A gospel witness affects, that's point number one. We're going to see that it affects us two ways. First, it affects 
us. A gospel witness affects us. Everyone else walking by, you can imagine, might have dropped some small change for this man lying there begging without ever looking at him. But then in verse 4, it goes out of the way the Lord sought fit to put in here to tell us that Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And they get his attention. They're walking by, and they, they stop and look over at him. And the man's probably not looking at people as he's asking. He's probably got his head down in shame and is asking so that he can survive. And they look over at him, and they get his attention. Hey, look at us. And he looks up expecting to receive something from them. They don't have money to give, but they give him something infinitely greater. They give him new life. He can walk. He can get up and move. He doesn't have to beg anymore. He's not helpless anymore. This is a great analogy of our spiritual condition before the Lord. We cannot move until God directs his gaze at us. He says, look at me. And we look to him and we receive that spiritual healing. So they look at him, look at us. They say, we don't have money, but here's what we have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. This is not an attention-grabbing stunt. This isn't a matter of obligation. They, they don't, they're not walking along thinking, okay, we have our quota that needs to be filled of good deeds. There's a paralyzed man. Okay, we'll do that one. Hey, get up and walk. Did it. Done. And walk on. This isn't what this is. Peter and John genuinely cared for this man and showed him compassion. You can feel it in the text. Jesus did and taught the very same thing. Matthew 14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus did this all throughout his ministry. He would go to an area, he would have compassion on the people, and then he would perform miracles, casting out demons, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind. It wasn't just an attention-grabbing stunt, though it did grab attention. Jesus genuinely cared for these people. He had compassion. Jesus taught a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, to illustrate how it is that we ought to love one's neighbor. What does it mean? Who, who is our neighbor, Jesus? What does it mean to love your neighbor? And Jesus gives this parable and teaches that the least likely person to show kindness to an Israelite, a Samaritan, demonstrates this truth by seeing this man on the side of the road beat up and going out of his way. The other Jews went out of their way to avoid him and walk by and not have to do anything. But this Samaritan goes out of his way to tend to the man, to treat his wounds, load him up on his animal, take him to the inn, pay the innkeeper, whatever else you got to pay, pay it, and I'll pay you back when I've returned. Now we see Peter and John, disciples of Jesus, doing the very same things. Why are they doing this? All the Israelites had the Old Testament law. This didn't come out of a vacuum. When Jesus answered, that he was asked, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the Scriptures? Talking about the Old Testament. Just this love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. This isn't a new command, but Jesus gave it new life. All the Israelites had the Old Testament law. They all knew they were to do good to people who could not do it for themselves. So why were Peter and John doing this and no one else was? The gospel had changed them. The gospel had changed them. To a degree, no one else could do what Peter and John did. No one could. But they could because they had been changed. They are doing this because they have been changed by the gospel. This is what it looks like whenever I say live the gospel, love the gospel, live the gospel, give the gospel. This is what this means. We are a living, a living embodiment of this truth. We show compassion. Why? Because we've been shown compassion. We show mercy. Why? Because we've been shown mercy. We show love to people. Why? Because we've been shown love. First, we love because he first loved us. Now, notice what this implies. Here's the second sub point here. 
A gospel witness affects us, but a gospel witness also affects others. To say that Jesus' disciples show compassion, they show mercy, they show love, means that someone else receives those things. When I show compassion to someone, it's because I've been changed and it has an effect on them. They experience that Christian compassion. These require an object to receive it. It's shown to someone. And again, this reflects Jesus' ministry, both in what he taught and what he modeled. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus teaches that his disciples are the salt and light of the world. How can a light remain hidden? No one lights it and covers it and puts it under the bed. No, they raise it up so it gives light to everyone. The disciples are the salt of the earth. Their actions affect those around them, pointing to the glory of God. People will see your good deeds, he said, and give glory to your Father in heaven. Everywhere Jesus went, he healed the sick, he spoke to the outcasts, he touched the lepers, he talked to sinners, and ultimately his death on the cross affects every person who submits to him as Lord and Savior. We benefit from the work of Jesus. It affects us, and then through us, it affects others, communities, workplaces, schools, towns, countries. All of these things ought to be different when Christians are present. We affect what's around us. We are to be a sweet aroma wherever we find ourselves. But a lot of times we find the opposite. There was a book written years and years ago, um, I believe by Dan Kimball maybe as a pastor, I believe in California, The book's titled, They Love Jesus, But Not the Church. And he would go in these coffee shops and write his sermons in a coffee shop as a way to try to gather attention so people come up and say, what are you working on? He would say, well, I'm a pastor at a church. And they'd be like, well, you're a pastor at a church? What are you doing here? Well, I'm writing my sermon. And he would sit and talk to them and share the gospel. And he said he got to know a lot of the people that would serve coffee and things at the shop, built up good relationships with them, and talked to one individual. I believe it was a young woman there. And she made a comment, you know, you're very different than most other Christians I know. He's heard comments from waiters or waitresses that say, my least favorite day of the week to work is Sunday. That's when the Christians come. They're rude and they don't tip well. Something is wrong when the gospel does not affect us and change us. When the world looks at us and says, I love what Jesus looks like, but you look nothing like that. Something is wrong. Now sometimes... There's other motivations behind those comments, but that doesn't mean that we are guiltless. This is part of our witness, part of our testimony. We are testifying that the gospel has the power to save and change. Somewhere along the way, we have cut that in half, and we don't really talk about the changing part. We really just want to talk about the saving part. The gospel can save you. It can save you. It can save you. And what we've done, actually, we have potentially gotten rid of the gospel. We've turned it to a ticket to heaven that requires nothing, does nothing. And we've convinced people, if you just make a decision, you don't have to be perfect, just make a decision, and you will be saved. But like Jesus talks about in another place, the cost of discipleship has to be considered. Who, who prepares to go to war without first looking at the number of people you have and the number of people that you're fixing to go and fight and then decide if you want to go to war? Who begins to build without calculating, okay, do I have enough money to buy all the supplies and the costs? Or else he starts building and then everyone laughs at him when he can't finish. Jesus says, this is what it's like to become my disciple. We cannot be saved by God without being changed in the process. This is part of the Christian's witness. So my question this morning, is your life a life with a marked difference? Are you an aroma to those around you because the gospel has done something to you that is inexplicable? Or do you really pretty much look like everybody else? Many who claim Jesus' name 
are lying to themselves and the rest of the world. They say they've received compassion and mercy and love, but they show none. This doesn't mean show more compassion, Christian. Show more mercy, Christian, then you'll be a Christian. That misses the whole point. The point is that these things flow from Christians almost as though they can't help it. That doesn't mean we don't put forth effort on these things, but it means it comes naturally to the believer. As Scripture says in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The gospel affects us and it affects others. Number two this morning. A gospel witness announces. A gospel witness announces. After this event here in verse 11... As he's clinging to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So everyone is astounded at what's happened, and they come up to Peter, and then Peter recognizes something here. It's called an opportunity. He sees an opportunity to share the gospel, and then he does it. We would be so much better. I would be so much better. It's sharing the gospel. If we simply learned to look for this one thing in life, opportunity. If we would just look for opportunity, it's there. We don't see it because we're not looking for it. I would give this example to students when I did student ministry. And I would say, you know, when's the last time you saw a blueberry muffin? Some of them are like, I see them every day. It makes me sick. I eat it for breakfast with my parents buy. Some of them are like, uh... We don't get that. I never see it. I'm like, I guarantee you, you'll see it at least once this week, probably multiple times. And then the next week, we'd roll back around, and Susan would come up and be like, Garrett, bro, the next day, I saw a, deliver, a food delivery van go by. What was on the side of it? Big picture of blueberry muffins. I got home. My parents were like, hey, look, I got this. And I'm like, look, life hasn't changed. I haven't done something special. The difference is you're looking for it now. It's kind of like the FedEx logo. There's that little arrow in the logo. Has anybody ever seen that? If you haven't seen it, look at FedEx logo next time. You'll see a little white arrow in between the letters. I guarantee you now, you will never be able to unsee that. It's because you're going to be looking for it. You know it's there, you just have to find it. So that's what Peter does. He seizes the opportunity, and how does he seize it? He speaks. He announces. There's a quote that I've mentioned before. It's often falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. The point being that our actions ought to proclaim the truth of the gospel, which is absolutely true. It's what we just looked at. The gospel affects us. But as witty as this quote is, it is wrong. First of all, Francis of Assisi never said this. He did not. You can look at his writings, it's not there. But second, and most importantly, it is impossible to preach the gospel without words. Every single Sunday, what do you expect me to do here? You expect me to get behind a pulpit and share what? Words. How would you like it if I just got up here and just loved you? I just loved you. That's not what you want, is it? We're here to hear something with words it requires sharing something it's it's kind of like saying win the race move if necessary we have to move to win the race we have to speak to preach the gospel now the point that our lives ought to confirm what we preach still stands but if we don't ever speak the gospel with words we have not truly ever shared the gospel has, has anybody ever heard you preach the gospel? I'm not talking about preparing a sermon and getting in a pulpit. Some of the times that the preaching of the gospel occurs in the, in the scriptures, it's people as they go sharing the gospel with others. Have you, ever, have you ever announced the gospel to someone who needed to hear it? Look at three specific things that Peter announces. First, a gospel witness announces Jesus the very first thing Peter does in verse 12. 
Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? I love that question. They've just done a miracle. And everyone's like, these men did this. And they gather around and he says, what are you looking at me for? (laughs) What did I do? He doesn't take the credit for this. What are you looking at me for? When they get the attention, they turn it right back to Jesus. Christians are a people who love to turn attention to Jesus. We love to divert the attention back to Jesus. Good work. Y'all are hard workers. That ain't me. I ain't a hard worker. Ask my parents. It's Jesus. Oh, you're such a nice person. Uh, No, I'm not. But Jesus has changed me. We love to divert attention back to Jesus all the time. Because the truth is, we don't deserve to be in the spotlight. We don't deserve that. You think, well, I mean, I'm not as, I mean, I don't want to say I deserve to be in the spotlight, but really, I mean, I'm a pretty good person. You don't know yourself and you don't know Jesus very well. The Christian loves to divert attention to Jesus. Peter gives three contrasts here to kind of make his point. Starting here in verse 13. He says, God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God has glorified his servant Jesus, but you condemned him. God exalted him, you condemned him. Then he says, you rejected the holy and righteous one, but then you received a murderer. You could have had Jesus, but you said, we don't want him, we want Barabbas. And then he says, you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. Jesus was a man, but as a man, he was totally unlike us. He is God and man. And Jesus exposes our problem in addition to fixing it. When we see ourselves next to Christ, we see we have a problem. And we also see Jesus can fix it. This is why we have to announce Jesus. To try to announce the gospel without Jesus makes no sense because Jesus exposes us and he fixes us. Jesus' innocence exposes our guilt. Jesus' compassion exposes our hatred. We think we're doing pretty good until we look at Jesus. And we're like, I'm, I'm not like him. We are divine rebels and God-killers, but Jesus is a humble servant who is self-sacrificially redeeming his people. Without Jesus, we have no message. There is no substitute for sin if there is no Jesus. There is no example to follow. There is no reason to seek God or to pursue good. Jesus is everything. The second thing a gospel witness announces is faith. After giving witness to Jesus and how the Jews treated him, Peter reveals how the paralyzed man was healed here in verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This word faith is often misunderstood in our culture. And I think we unintentionally adopt their form of faith in our language, in our Christian language. Faith is used by almost everyone, whether they're a believer or not. There's people who don't believe in God, and they use the word faith. And it typically means something like this. Optimistic hope despite evidence or circumstances to the contrary. I I, I just have faith. Well, how do you know it's going to happen? I just have faith. It's kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card, but I just have faith. Yeah, but look at all that it doesn't, I just do. And so we take this idea of faith, and then we apply that to our relationship with God. It's kind of an excuse for us to think uncritically of God. One online definition, I think it was Merriam-Webster said it well, Faith is firm belief in something for which there is no proof. Listen clearly. This is not how the Bible defines faith. 
This is not how the Bible defines faith. This isn't what the Bible means when it talks about having faith in Jesus. Well, I believe Jesus, even though everything says that it's not true. I still believe it anyway. That's not what the Bible teaches. Faith is active. It is to believe Jesus, to trust Jesus. At the Upward Devo this last, uh, I guess it was yesterday, yesterday, we talked about in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, lean not on your own understanding, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And I said that trust is only as good as the trustworthiness of the object that you place your trust in. It makes no sense to have trust in something that everything points contrary. All the evidence says don't trust this. You say, I'm going to do it anyway. That's no honor to the thing you're trusting. It's no honor to Jesus to say, well, you know what? Everything says that you shouldn't be able to do anything, but I'm going to do it anyway, just in case. That's not trust, and that's not faith. It's not just that Jesus has healed the man, though he did. It's that Peter and John's active trust in Jesus healed him. And to show you what I mean, I'm going to fast forward in the book of Acts, chapter 19. You can turn there with me if you'd like. I'm going to read verses 11 through 17. Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 17. Acts 19, 11 through 17. The gospel is continuing to extend, now reaching the ends of the earth, like we saw in Acts 1.8. And along the way, starting in verse 11, Acts 19.11, it says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So here, the name of Jesus was used... But the demon was not exercised. In the name of Jesus, the same Jesus that guy proclaims, come out. You would think, well, it was the name of Jesus. This is going to be testimony to the name of Jesus. Surely God will do that, but he doesn't. And the demon says, I know Jesus and I know Paul. I'm terrified of them. I don't know who you are. They did not have faith in Jesus. They didn't have active trust in Jesus. They were not allowed to perform this miracle because they did not have faith. It was the Jesus Paul proclaimed. The gospel message is a message of personal trust in Jesus. And it's not just for salvation. That's the beginning of our personal trust. Personal trust flows into every other day of our lives. And it overflows in continued daily obedience to Jesus. We trust that Jesus will sustain us. We trust that he'll carry our burdens. It doesn't mean we're not going to ever suffer. But we trust that he will sustain us. We trust that he will empower us. So a gospel witness announces Jesus and faith. Third, it announces repentance. Immediately after this, going back to Acts chapter 3 now, after speaking about his faith in Jesus, his trust in Jesus, Peter then calls them to have faith. And how does he do that? Does he tell them believe? Hey, just have faith that just believe and you will be saved. No, though that is implied, they must believe. How does he invite them into faith? Verse 19. 
Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Faith is the fuel for repentance, and repentance is the evidence of faith. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one rightly without having the other necessarily. True biblical repentance requires faith. And true biblical faith leads to repentance. You see this in the book of James. You say you have faith, I'll show you that I have faith. You say I have faith and then it doesn't change you. I will show you my faith. Even the demons believe in God. They believe in Jesus and they shudder. Faith and repentance fit perfectly together. Faith turns the heart from sin to God. It's an inner disposition that's changed. And then the heart, in turn, turns the person. That's biblical repentance. Peter explained that Jesus is the prophet whom Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18.15. And this prophet was to be obeyed. Faith-fueled repentance is how we obey Jesus. That's how it works. Listen carefully. Jesus is the key to both faith and repentance. I want you to look with me at verse 16. It says in verse 16, The faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health. Isn't that an interesting word through Jesus. What does that mean? Now verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Who is doing the turning? Who's doing the turning here? God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first To bless you, God blesses by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So it's not just faith in Jesus, it's faith through Jesus. Jesus enables us to trust Him. And it's not just turning to God, it's turning through God. If it was not for God's work in our lives, we could not turn to Him. We are spiritually dead, the scriptures teach. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead doesn't mean I'm injured, but I can still hobble along. Dead means dead. You're dead. But God, being rich in mercy. The moment that we separate either faith or repentance from the power of Jesus, we reveal the true source of of our faith and repentance. Pride. If Jesus is not to blame for my faith and repentance, who's to blame? Me. It's my power. I've got it figured out. I I believed. I turned from my sin. I deserve this. Jesus convicts us. Jesus convinces us to trust him. Jesus takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh that we might walk in his commandments. Jesus pulls back the veil from over our eyes. Jesus calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Jesus is the author of our faith. Jesus is the finisher or the perfecter of our faith faith. This is precisely what it means to trust Jesus. It wouldn't be trusting Jesus if I had the power to do any of this on my own. Do you see now why we make that distinction about what is faith? It's trust in Jesus. There are many people in churches all across our country that call themselves Christians. They proclaim Jesus They have faith, and they have repented. 
but they are not saved. There are people in our churches that call themselves Christians. They have faith and they have repented, but they are not saved. Now that I've got your attention, they go to church, they act patient, they read their Bibles, they pray, but they do not know Jesus. They don't know Jesus. They are going to be condemned on judgment day because Jesus wasn't the source of their faith or the power behind their repentance. It was self. They heard the gospel of Jesus. If you just believe, if you just have faith and repent, you'll be saved. Okay, I believe that Jesus was real and I will do my best to repent. And they go out and they do all these works. Who's the source of their righteousness? Self. They worked harder than anyone. And they're going to get to heaven and God's going to say, I never knew you. Well, but we taught in your name. I I cast out demons. I taught Sunday school. I was the most loving person in our church. Don't tell me I don't know Jesus. They're going to be angry and frustrated because they don't know Jesus. Following Jesus for them was simply a spiritualized version of be a good person and go to heaven. That's what they believed. That's where their faith and their trust was. It was in self. Faith was nothing more than just checking a box and saying, I'll try to do better. You don't have to actually trust Jesus to do either of those. But that's exactly what a lot of people have done in the name of Jesus. They are just like the Jewish exorcists. In the name of the Jesus that that guy proclaims, that it's not a personal trust. Biblical faith and repentance is trusting Jesus to do what you know you can't do on your own. Trust and follow God. We can't do that on our own. Jesus is how we do that. The prerequisite to this biblical faith and repentance is humiliation. I can't do it. Until you can say those words, I can't do it. You can't trust Jesus. Jesus, faith, and repentance. You can't have one of those without the others. So that's the gospel witness announcing. Here's the last point this morning, and we're wrapping up. A gospel witness aggravates. A gospel witness aggravates. Maybe you feel this this morning. You're aggravated at what I've just said. While we want the gospel to be received with gratefulness and acceptance, that simply is not always the case. The gospel is offensive to those who are perishing. The scripture says it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. To one group, it offends them by telling them that they are not God. You don't get to pick the rules. You don't get to say what happens. God does. And he has set a day on which he will judge everyone according to his rules. The gospel offends them. There's another group that it offends by telling them that they aren't good. You may do good things, but apart from Jesus, in truth, you're wicked. The gospel offends those people. I believe this latter category describes well the anger of the spiritual leaders here starting in chapter 4. They were aggravated at Jesus. They knew that Jesus was talking about them. Jesus is dead. You know, they've got to be celebrating. Well, third day, Jesus isn't in the tomb. Well, we'll figure this out. It'll be okay. Now his disciples are coming out and saying, hey, guess what? Jesus is alive. And they're doing the same thing that Jesus did, and they hate it. They hate it. They don't want to be told they're not good. They don't want to be told they have to trust Jesus. They're offended. How dare they suggest we don't know God? How dare they say Jesus is the Messiah? So in our third point this morning, we're going to see two things. Number one, a gospel witness aggravates. Number one, persecution is promised. You can expect persecution. We can all expect it. If we're being faithful, persecution is promised. 
Peter and John's arrest by the Jewish authorities should not be surprising to us. Why? Because Jesus promised this was going to happen. He told us it was going to happen. We saw it in the book of John. Many people will not like to hear the gospel, and they will not like the people who announce it. You can expect it. Take it to the bank. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Paul tells Timothy, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The gospel is offensive to both evil people, they think they are God, and imposters, they think that they are good. We shouldn't be surprised when we receive the brunt of their aggression. Second and final, persecution is powerless. Persecution is promised, church. It is coming. Let me tell you right now, it's powerless. Do not be afraid of it. After Peter and John went to jail, what happened? The church goes from 3,000 to 5,000. It almost doubled. The authorities couldn't stop it. Hey, get those guys. Arrest them. Church is blowing up. Persecution is powerless to stop the work of God. These Jewish leaders couldn't stop the gospel from reaching and saving souls. Listen, it's going to be hard and it's going to hurt. You will receive physical pain. Maybe not here, not yet. I believe it's coming personally. You will receive emotional pain as people badmouth you, insult you, call you a bigot. They will find ways to hurt you that maybe you haven't even imagined of. But it has no power over the true believer because it has no power over God. You understand? In fact, in the places where persecution is the most pronounced, the gospel seems to spread the fastest. Because Christians are not stopped by persecution. This is why Jesus teaches us to endure in our obedience to be a gospel witness. Matthew 10, 28. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't be afraid of people. Your soul is secure. Endure. I want to end with the words from one of the church's early apologists, one of the earliest, Justin Martyr, in about 150 AD. Persecution is still severe, and he tells his enemies this in his apology. It's not like a, I'm going to apologize, it's like a defense, an apology. He says, No evil can be done to us unless we are convicted as evildoers or proved to be wicked men. You can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. Here's what he's saying. You don't like my message? You can kill me, but it won't hurt. Are we filled with that same boldness? Are you expecting persecution to come? It's when we don't expect it that it will throw us off the most. Kind of like the football player that's playing and has no idea someone is coming to T-bone him. And he gets hit, and he's out. He's done. Are you expecting persecution? Second question, are you afraid of persecution? Is it keeping you from being obedient? If Satan knows it works, he will continue to push it. We have gotten so comfortable in our country that we're afraid to be obedient and to lose our comfort. This morning, may we imitate the faith of Peter and John. Be a faithful gospel witness. Show that we've been affected and affect those around us. Announce Jesus' faith and repentance. 
expecting persecution, but knowing it is powerless over us. Church, may we be deeply affected by the gospel daily. May we live the gospel in such a way that others are blessed through our faith and good works. May we trust Jesus in faith and in Jesus' power to turn from our sin daily. And finally, may we endure suffering so that others might hear the gospel and be saved. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at the early church and their faithful testimony of the power of the gospel, as we see the boldness of Peter and John, not afraid of what can be done to them, because they know, Lord, that their persecutors can kill the body, but they cannot touch the soul. Lord, we desire to be filled with such a spirit of boldness. We desire to be faithful gospel witnesses, living out the gospel, showing that we've been changed, not in our power. It's not that we have put forth the effort, Lord. We want it to be clear to everyone that it is Jesus who has changed us. We want to be those who have turned attention constantly back to Jesus so that he might receive honor and glory and power. But Lord, we cannot do that apart from you. So would you please empower us through the Holy Spirit whom you have sent to dwell in us. Cause us to be a powerful gospel witness not just with our lives, but also with our words, that we might boldly proclaim faith and repentance. Not a self-generated, self-powered, self-righteousness, but a Jesus-fueled faith that trusts Jesus to turn us from our sin. Lord, when persecution arises, would you protect us, your saints? Would you protect us so that we can continue to be a gospel witness? Would you remind us that that persecution, when it comes, is powerless? They can kill us, but they cannot hurt us. Lord, cause this truth to animate us to obedience to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.